Cool. Okay, so today's message is the first in a new series on the book of Colossians, uh, which is actually a letter, as we've uh, just heard from the Apostle Paul and his spiritual son Timothy to the church in the town of Colossae. Now, people just don't, don't write letters for no good reason, uh, do they? Uh, they usually have some kind of point. They usually have some kind of reason for writing in the first place. And when we understand uh, the reason that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, it really helps us to understand what he wrote um, and why he wrote it and the real relevance it has for us today. So it turns out that the church in Colossae was under threat from a group of people known as the Gnostics. So who were these people, the Gnostics? And what did they believe? And why was it a threat to the believers in Colossae? So the name Gnostic uh, comes from the Greek word Gnosis, uh, G-N-O, like the same as gnome, but Gnosis, which means knowledge. And knowledge is the means of salvation. But how? How is knowledge in the Gnostic worldview a means of salvation? Well, it turns out that the Gnostics believed in a true uh, ultimate and transcendent God, so so far so good, uh, who is beyond all created universes, so that's a bit different, um, there's only one universe as far as, far as we know, but, um, but this ultimate and transcendent God never created anything in the sense that the word create is ordinarily understood, so that's a bit weird, but it gets weirder. So this uh, true God uh, did not fashion or create anything. But he, uh, he or it, and remember that, it, genderless, we, we'll come back to that. He emanated or brought forth from himself the substance of all there is in all the worlds, visible and invisible. So that's not, I, I don't quite know the difference between creating and emanating, but there you go. Uh, standing between um, humans and God, so there's a, a gap between us and God, are these God-like inferior beings, one of which was called Sophia, or Wisdom. And Sophia was responsible for emanating from her own being a flawed, another flawed being. So we've got the true God, we've got Sophia, and now we've got this flawed being <clears throat> who became creator of the material and immaterial world that, that we inhabit now. Uh, and he created this world in the image of his own blemishes. Okay? So this being, who Gnostics believe to be the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, um, unaware of his, of his origins, imagined himself to be the ultimate and absolute God. And they also called this being Demiurgos, or half-maker. It's like half-pie. And if Demiurgos sounds familiar to you, it's, it's probably because there's a cafe... <laughs> On Victoria Street, which has great coffee, I must say. Um, so that tells you something about these beliefs, right? They haven't gone away. <clears throat> so what, what do we have so far? Gnostics believe that the world we inhabit is inferior. And it's inferior because of the inferior God, the Demiurgos, who made it. It's not our fault. All physical matter is subject to decay, rotting and death because they were created by an inferior being. So this world that we live in, as a kind of a half-botched copy of a, a much more beautiful and perfect world that exists elsewhere. So 
what we've got so far is this botched world is botched because it's made by a botched God. There's a lot of botching going on, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and that's quite attractive from our humanity's perspective, isn't it? Because we don't get to be responsible for sin and you know pain and, and the suffering of this world. It's it's this botched demiurgos being who who screwed it up. So what's the answer? What do Gnostics believe is the answer? Well, they believe that human beings contain a piece of the true God, a divine spark, with trapped within ourselves, which has fallen from the immaterial world into our bodies. So it's trapped in the material world, but it's ignorant. It's ignorant of its own status. And so these divine sparks, and every, every one of us has one according to the Gnostics, require secret knowledge or gnosis to inform them of their true status. So achieving self-actualization is about discovering the secret knowledge and um, becoming enlightened. And once we become enlightened, we get to escape this terrible place, this inferior world, <clears throat> for this beautiful, perfect place that exists elsewhere. So each of us has this huge potential, this divine spark. We just need to look within to uncover the, the inner God, the star within us, so to speak. <clears throat> and the individual human soul must create and shape itself, becoming the author of its own identity. It's starting to sound familiar. So it can ascend the heights of perfection, powered by its own smarts. The individual human self is therefore the seat of all authority, the main actor in its own personal cosmic drama. In other words, Gnosticism is all about me. So what about Jesus then? How, does, how did he fit in? Well, for Gnostics, Jesus was a messenger of light who brought the revelation of knowledge that saves the individual from ignorance. He doesn't save us from sin, he saves us from ignorance. So they believed that, you know, a number of times in Scripture, Jesus took his disciples aside. Well, according to Gnostics, he, he passed on the secret knowledge. that was It didn't end up in the Bible. The secret knowledge went elsewhere and was obtained by the Gnostics. So it's not by the suffering and death of Jesus that, that brought salvation, but by his life and teaching and his establishment of mysteries of the one of, of the true eternal God. And in keeping with this the oneness of this God, the, the transcendent God, Gnostics promote the idea of androgyny or union of gender. Is starting to sound familiar? So Christ came to earth in human appearance to teach humanity how to return to this original and androgyny and reunite with God. That's what they believe in a nutshell. So that's the scene. So what are the main elements? There's three main elements. Physical matter is evil. The spiritual world is good. That's called dualism. So we have physical matter, inferior or even evil. Spiritual world is good. Inner world is good. Or even might even be perfect. Salvation comes through the second thing. Salvation comes through secret knowledge, which allows us to escape this world. And thirdly, I am the ultimate authority, and it's up to me to earnestly strive for knowledge so that I can save myself. If I don't strive for knowledge, I will forever be condemned to be trapped here on earth, which is, according to the Gnostics, that would be hell. <coughs> Okay, so that's the background to this letter. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. 
and he's responding to this threat. And it's a it's a decent threat, right? Because Jesus won't be Lord and Saviour if these if this belief system takes hold. Um, he would have been become some kind of spiritual guide um, instead of Lord and Saviour. So Paul could see this, and this is why he wrote this letter to the young church. And and when we when we say young, <clears throat> we mean young. Um, people think that Paul wrote this letter in, in the eighty fifties uh, while he was in prison. So that's only twenty or thirty years after Jesus ascended. So it didn't take long for all these whacked out beliefs to to come into place, did they? So let's get a look at the introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, a brother to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So straight away we see the significance of these introductory words, right? Um, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So God is, is while he is transcendent, he is intimately involved in creation because he chose, he chose Paul to be his apostle. And on top of that, the believers in Colossae are God's holy people because they are in Christ. They're not individuals striving for their own salvation. They've already received salvation and become children of God. They are holy now, because, and not because of the attainment of secret knowledge, but because of the gift of God. So straight away, in that, just in that opening few verses, Paul is starting to undermine the Gnostic heresy. And then in this next passage we see how believing in Jesus outworks itself in our lives. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. So every belief system outworks itself, doesn't it? And it, the, it, one of the mysteries of humanity is that when we take on a new belief, we don't know how it's going to work itself out. And this is the alarming thing about something, some of the things that are happening today. Uh, well, we might actually get a heads up about how things will work, will work out by looking at Colossians. So a belief in Jesus outworks itself in love and concern for others. So Paul prays for the people of Colossae, and the people of Colossae uh, show the love and concern they have for God's people by by sharing um, their love and prayers and physical gifts. So how do you think Gnosticism would work itself out? How, how would this, this, this emphasis on the self, it's up to me to find the secret knowledge to save myself, how would that outwork itself in reality? I think it would manifest itself in prioritising number one, wouldn't it? We, each of us would be number one, and while we can respect other people's journey or whatever, it's up to me to save myself. So I make myself number one. And Paul also says the message of the gospel is true and bears fruit when we truly understand God's grace. <clears throat> and now we know that grace is a gift from God that we haven't done anything to deserve. But this would be anathema to the Gnostics, right? Not, the Gnostics would pride themselves on, on earnestly striving for this knowledge and discovering it. And then they would be somebody. They would be able to rescue themselves. And what's more, this gospel message is not secret or hidden. It's available 
to every anyone, and it's true for everyone. And this is a different thing about Gnostic truth. Gnostic truth is only true for the individual. And man, haven't how about you? But this stuff, they're starting to to like read about like what we see on TV and movies and all these cultural messages that are coming through to us. It's just like, yeah, <laughs> it's just like re- like the threat that the church in Colossae faced. Nothing's new under the sun. No, it just it just morphs and changes slightly and then rears its ugly head again. So this um, verse nine. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people and the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it's it's I don't know if you've read Colossians before, and these words sound magnificent, but you don't really understand why he wrote them, why the Apostle Paul wrote them. But once you know what he's responding to, it suddenly makes a whole lot more sense. So wisdom and understanding are not self-discovered, as the Gnostics believe. They're a gift from God. And we can pray for each other to receive wisdom and understanding. And now that we have received salvation, the purpose of wisdom and understanding is not to escape this world. It's to help us live lives that please God and bless others. Again, it's that outworking of um, serving and blessing other people as opposed to ourselves. So what pleases God is bearing good fruit, bearing fruit in every good work, bearing fruit in every good work. And this is important, isn't it? Doing good things for their own sake doesn't achieve anything. It's bearing fruit in every good work. And then let's just think about that for a second. Have you ever done something you consider good and not received any recognition for it? No good on your ground, no pat on the back, no nothing. You just give and give and give. And not only do you not get any thanks, you get criticised for something else that you haven't got quite right. And then you get resentful. Why am I bothering to do all this stuff when I don't get any thanks? Now here's the kicker. What's more important to God? Is it doing good things? Or is it the fruit of resentment? I think God is more concerned with the fruit of resentment. There's no no point in doing good stuff if we get resentful about it. And that's, <laughs> it's such a human thing to do. And, and I've experienced this myself a, a few times in my life. But I think God would want that instead of bearing the fruit of resentment, we bear the fruit of love, patience and kindness and so on. And it's interesting that it's bearing fruit in every good work. Like, if you, if you do something bad and you get slapped for it, it's kind of like, well, I deserve that. But when you do something good, you kind of, you know, I did something good. It would be nice if I got a little pat on the head or something for it. But when you don't get that, that's 
That's when resentment comes in. You don't get resentful if you've done something bad. Right? It's just like, oh, you know, that didn't work out well, and that's fair enough. So that's bearing fruit in every good work. But also here we see a, a real clash in the Christian worldview and the Gnostic worldview. Yes, the world is imperfect. I think every belief system, or maybe apart from Buddhism, which, which I think Buddhism treats everything as an illusion, but pretty much every belief system accepts that the world is imperfect and evil exists. But the Christian worldview says, yes, the world is imperfect, but God uses the imperfections of the world by building endurance and patience in us. In verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And I think we read a lot about endurance and patience in the scriptures. These are very precious qualities to God. And we couldn't, we couldn't bear the fruit of endurance and patience without the, this imperfect world in which we live. Right? Because if the world was perfect, <laughs> we, wouldn't, we wouldn't need to bear anything. And this is, the, this is the, the, the deep truth about this life. As much as we desire comfort and ease, and, and I guess we're all, we all want to be happy, so we, part of us acknowledges the, the Gnostic temptation, if you like. Um, it's a very human uh, desire to be happy and to be comfortable and, and to have a, a good life. Um, we really only grow in the face of adversity. And the human side of us doesn't like this. We would rather escape pain and hard times if we could. So again, this, this, this Gnostic thing of escapism into a, a beautiful and perfect world where I can be whoever I want to be and, and there's no limits on, on who I can be and there's nothing of the, nothing holding me back. <laughs> you know, this, this <laughs> Gnostic, yeah, Gnostic, yeah. Gnostic view, it's, um, it's quite attractive. But that's not what God asks us to do. In fact, that's the very opposite. Why? Because we develop endurance and patience, and these are very precious qualities to God. And all this, in addition to all this, where Paul exhorts us to give joyful thanks to the Father. And the Gnostics would thrive at this point. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm, it's quite clear that the, the, the church in Colossae are, are, are suffering. They're going through adversity. Uh, um, yes, uh, they're develop, developing endurance and patience, but now you want me to give joyful thanks on top? Why? Because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> so some people believe that the only way to be thankful is to make yourself be thankful. You just gotta just gotta start thinking. And I, I've tried that. It doesn't it doesn't work. I've tried it a number of times, and it just if you just try and start thanking God, even then you don't feel like it. It just goes nowhere, I've found. 
The only way I can be genuinely thankful is to focus on the riches that I have in Christ. Paul says that we have already been rescued, all of our sins have been forgiven, and that makes my inheritance and glory that is to come secure. <coughs> There's no question mark over it. So I'd encourage you, meditate on what God has already given you, on the riches of the kingdom of heaven that you already have. And you will find thankfulness welling up inside of you. Don't, don't just try and force yourself to be thankful. Just, well, I, I don't know. It didn't work for me anyway. And now we come to the one of the most glorious passages in the whole of Scripture. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers of authority. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Isn't that amazing? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul's got his, his uh, spiritual gun and he's, he's loading the bullets and he's, he discharges it right into the Gnostic heresy. Jesus is not just a, simply a messenger of light, saving people from ignorance. He's not some angelic type of being. He's the image of the invisible God, and through him all things were made. God is not so transcendent and hidden that he's impossible to know. His character is gloriously displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. The, the demi-ergos, this thing, did not create the world. Jesus did. And it's not evil, and we've seen that in Genesis 1, 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So that really blows the Gnostic heresy apart. That's the magnificence of the person of Christ, and that's who he is. And in verse 16, a wonderful verse, we get given the answers to life's most basic questions. It's right here. <clears throat> what are these existential questions? It's two of them. Who am I? In other words, what's the meaning of my life? Is there any value or worth in my life? Number two, why am I here? What's my purpose? Why am I using up oxygen? Paul says all things have been created through him and for him. And we're one of the all things, aren't we? Each one of us. And I can personalise verse 16 by saying, Graham was created by Jesus, or through Jesus, and for Jesus. And you can do the same. Louise was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Put your name in there. And that's all you need to know about yourself. That's how I got created, why I got created. That's who I am and why I'm here. We are the unique, special, supernatural creation of Jesus. And our value is inherent in our creation by Jesus. So that means no job, no accomplishment, no pleasure, no boy, no girl, no success, no fame, no money can trump what is already true about you. You were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And that's why we're here, each one of us. And finally, if we have Jesus, we have enough. There's no separate knowledge required. We just need Jesus. He has the supremacy, not the demiurgos, and definitely not any angelic being standing in the way of us finding God. Jesus has the supremacy. Now, I've, I've read this verse before. 
Um, about God reconciling all things. <clears throat> yeah, uh, verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace with, um, with his blood shed on the cross. I've read this verse before and I've, uh, I've, I've kind of said, is that, is that pointing to universalism? Is that saying God has already reconciled every, everything and everyone to himself so that they're saved whether they want to or not? And I think that would be clearly at odds with what the Bible says in many other places. And it's interesting, the Greek word for reconcile here is made up of two words, and one of which was originally used for the exchange of coins. And the meaning of the word reconcile then is that the debt that all things owe to God has been paid for. And that's why I quite like the Living Bible's translation of this verse. It was through what his son did that God cleared a path for everything to come to him. All things in heaven and on earth. For Christ's death on the cross has made peace with God for all by his blood. So, so a path has been made. There's nothing stopping anyone or anything coming to Christ. But it's only through Christ, and we can see that in verse 23. If you continue in your faith, establish the firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Okay, so the Gnostic threat that Paul was, was writing to the church in Colossae about, if you go down this path, if you accept the Gnostic worldview, if you accept what the Gnostics believe, you will forfeit your standing before God. That's what he's saying here. Why would we throw away that precious gift that Christ has won for us? And now he goes on to say, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant, which is the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness, a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. He has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Wonderful verse. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now that verse 24, there's a whole bunch of stuff being written about that verse. And to be honest, I still don't actually know what it means. I don't quite know what Paul is going on about there. But I do know what he doesn't mean. He definitely, definitely doesn't mean that what Christ suffered while he was on earth, which was his, his afflictions, were lacking in any way. He's not saying that. Because we know that Jesus' death was a full and sufficient sacrifice. And that's why God raised him from the dead. Because his sacrifice was greater than the sin that he was paying for. So there's two important points here. First is that there's no more hidden knowledge. God has disclosed it. He's made it known. There's no need to earnestly strive as the Gnostics would have us believe. Jesus is the mystery of God that has been now made known. And here's everything we need. And if anyone tries to, to say, oh, you need this, oh, I found this, uh, this important new thing that you need to believe to be saved, they're wrong. Don't buy it. Remember this verse. And the second is that this mystery is very simple and yet so profound. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not Christ and you. It's not us and Christ. As if, as if we can contribute 
in, in, in any way to our salvation as the Gnostics believed, but Christ in us. And the glory here that, that, this, that Paul is talking about is this a wonderful uh, condition of blessedness which all of us will partake in when Jesus returns from heaven. And that's a point, an important point in itself. Jesus returns from heaven. It's not us escaping out of this inferior world. The kingdom of God, Jesus will come to us and renew this whole world. So how can we participate in this glory? By inviting Jesus to dwell within us. That's it. No secret knowledge. No earnest striving to attain enlightenment. With Jesus we have everything we need to secure our place in the glory that is to come. And in fact, eternal life for us has already begun. Christ in us is our security. So where does that leave us in, the, in us in the 21st century? Well, I'm sure there are quite a few things that raise uncomfortable alarm bells with you. And that's because Gnostic beliefs have risen again in our time, but with a new contemporary twist. Have you wondered why society seems to be getting more individualistic and more selfish? That's Gnosticism. That's the fruit of Gnosticism. When we place ourselves at the centre, this is what happens. And it's, uh, I, read, I read a book where researchers interviewed thousands of American teenagers and they found that despite whether they came from religious or non-religious uh, backgrounds, almost all held to a loose, non-binding belief in a distant God a belief that doesn't call us to account, but rather that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. So that's not Christianity. So Gnosticism lives once again. And we're talking about the destructive effects of this philosophy, uh, of which selfishness is but one manifestation. There's more that are coming out now. <laughs> And one is biological sex as a social construct. Don't know if you heard that one before, but that's where this whole gender thing came from, biological sex as a social construct. Now, I don't mean to marginalise anyone who suffers from gender dysphoria, but the scripture will say the answer is not to treat our physical body as if it's inferior and to cut it or, or rearrange it to fit what we think it should be. It's that dualism. Right, the, the body is inferior or evil and it's holding me back the, the spiritual world, my inner world is, is good and pure and I can, I, can separate, I, I can live as if I can separate the two you can't the, the, the biblical worldview sees a human being as a unity yes made up of many parts but a, a unity remember Christ's body when he rose from dead it still had the scars right? Mm -hmm. so even our resurrected body is going to be uh, it's the, it's the same body that we have now but transformed in, a, in an incredible way so again that's an element of Gnosticism coming again that we can we can treat our physical body as if it's I don't know a plasticine or something like that and one more is, is another thing that, that we touched on is the deliberate attempt to embrace androgyny and lose the, to act, actively work against the, the differences between men and women that are wonderful, wonderfully God-given. This is a Gnostic goal. This is, this is where it's come from. I was reading uh, something in the paper about fashion and, and 
they were they were saying, oh, it's going to be wonderful. Soon we're going to see um, biological men wearing woman clothes, woman's clothes, skirts and what have you. And there's going to be no more men's fashion and women's fashion. There's just going to be this androgynous fashion. Doesn't sound great to me. <coughs> no, it doesn't do much for me either, Bill. And again, this Gnostic temptation to escape reality is becoming manifest in the in the form of cyber reality, isn't it? Who is familiar with the metaverse? Everyone familiar with that? The metaverse is going to be um, new, whole new cyber worlds connected by what Facebook are wanting to create, which is uh, Facebook will be the structure whereby we can journey from cyber world to cyber world. We can create our own avatar, and, and this avatar will, will, can, can be anything we want it to be. And if you, if you want to have a look at um, the sci-fi movie Ready Player One, you'll, you'll see what, you'll get a taste of what it's about. In fact, one of the characters who was in, in the, his, their avatar was this big, massive guy, was actually a black woman in real life. So they, they created this avatar that was completely different from who they were in real life. So Facebook has rebranded itself to Meta, so they want to create this architecture um, whereby we can move from cyber world to cyber world. And I don't, while I don't think this is necessarily evil, I see it as this manifestation of the Gnostic desire to escape this inferior world all of the restrictions that are placed in us into beautiful worlds that we can just be who we want to be, whatever we desire. Yeah. So, uh, interesting. It's interesting at the end of that movie, Ready Player One, um, they, they're trying to say the cyber worlds are good, but actually talk to each other in real life. And But I don't, I, I think the temptation to to engage in these cyber worlds where we don't have any limitations placed on us will be, it's just going to grow and grow, I think. So against all of this that, that we're facing, Gnosticism uh, impacting our society again, the Apostle Paul's timeless words stand as true as they ever were. We are not the centre Jesus is. Each one of us was created through him and for him. We discover who we are in him and we don't have to create our own identity. We are not the main actor in our personal cosmic drama. Jesus is the main actor, and we find our place by participating in his cosmic drama. The world is God's world, and it is his good creation, despite the sufferings and the pain we experience. And God uses the trials of this life to grow the qualities of endurance and patience in us, and he has set the example for us to follow in the life and death of Jesus. To try and escape or avoid the trials of life by... Escaping to this a perfect imaginary world is to reject the purposes of God. And one of the one of the main things that researchers are finding out is people are becoming more and more fragile in character. We're, be, we're becoming more and more fragile. We can't cope with with, with life. <clears throat> and finally, to cut ourselves off from God, who is a source of grace, is to foster a graceless society, and that will lead to a lot of conflict. But I want to bring this even closer to home. I know that almost all of us here have at least one aspect of our lives that bring us pain and suffering, or at least as a burden to us. 
What are we to do with this thing? What are we to do with this cross that God has seemingly laid on our shoulders? The Gnostic temptation would be to flee. I'll cut everything off that's holding me back and I'll go and find the life of happiness that I, that I desire. Here in Colossians, Jesus presents another way. Jesus is calling us to place him at the centre of our lives, to seek his will for our particular situation, this burden that we find ourselves carrying. And once we understand what he's asking us to do, and, and, and as we do that, we place him in the place of supremacy. Once we've heard from him, let's ask him for the grace to live out what he has called us to do. And in doing so, we will grow the fruit of patience and endurance in us. So let's pray. 